Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Well, good evening, everyone. So glad to see you here tonight. Of course, this is my final opportunity to be here as your pastor, and um, I would love to preach tonight. Just one more time, if you would oblige me. Thank you so much for Sunday making my family feel so warm and welcome's not the right word. We've been feeling welcomed for a long time now. We uh, just, uh, you've done well to make Oxford a hard place to leave because our hearts are knit with y'all. And as we've said, our hearts are knit in an eternal way because the bond of our fellowship is grounded in the essential nature of God himself who is love. And so I'm very thankful. We were overwhelmed by your generosity to us. Very grateful for your gifts. Uh, Grateful for the roses that my wife got. The cake that we got to eat. uh, Still eating on in some cases. Just very grateful for all that Oxford has done for us. And we covet your prayers. Tomorrow I'll be driving to Noonan, trying to get settled in into my new position. And So the way that it's going to work out for us is that uh, Monday through Thursday, I'm going to be driving back and forth to Noonan. And then on Saturday, we'll go down, spend the night with my parents. And then, of course, we'll have two services on Sunday, 8.30 and 11. And then uh, whatever activities they have after that, then we'll be coming back so the kids can go to school on Monday. And then, of course, I'll be driving back. On Monday, So we're going to be continuing that so that our kids can remain in their schools. Uh, we're going to be doing that. So we'll be in the area, Lord willing, until the end of May when our home will prayerfully sell and we'll be able to find a home. Pray for us, please, during this whole process. Just got off the phone the other day with my broker, and he told me that uh, since our last conversation that interest rates have risen a uh, half a point already in a week. And so the market right now is recovering. We were in a recession for so long. Now the market is recovering. So the low interest rates that everyone has had are going to be things of the past. And so he was encouraging me to find a house as quick as I could. Not only do I have the market, uh, the interest rate, but the inventory of the market is also not in my favor because where we want to live uh, there's not a lot of homes that are in our price range for sale. And so anyway, the Lord's going to work out all these details. It's just a matter of us during this time figuring out, all right, oh Lord, we trust you. Now, what on earth will you do? So please continue to pray for us as we will continue to pray for you. So take your Bible, please, tonight and join me in Matthew chapter 6. And tonight we're going to look again one more time, sort of as an appendix to the Sermon on the Mount, one more time at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And it's interesting because at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, we have this prayer. And I really hope that we don't miss the significance of this. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is considered by most uh, the significant collection of teachings directly from the mouth of the incarnate Christ that we possess. And now every preacher who's ever preached has preached 
either all of or a section of the Sermon on the Mount. And here's the reason, because the themes that are in the Sermon on the Mount, from chapter 5 through chapter 7, the themes that are in the Sermon on the Mount are repeated almost everywhere in Scripture. And at the heart of this most significant passage, our Lord teaches us to pray. So don't miss how significant this is. Now, I want to tell you, I have been to the site of the Sermon on the Mount in Israel, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The Roman Catholics, they built a gorgeous church that sits on the top of uh, the ruins of a Byzantine-era church. It's the Church of the Beatitudes. And believe it or not, its frame is octagonal. It has eight sides. Why is that? Because there are eight Beatitudes. And so they designed the entire church. Each side represents a different Beatitude. And I believe, and I've been to almost all the places over there, I believe that it's one of the most beautiful structures, maybe the most beautiful structures in all of Israel. You should, when we go home tonight, if the Lord allows, you should go and Google a picture of the Church of the Beatitudes and see how beautiful. And if the church doesn't get you, then the setting of it will, because you walk out on the balcony of this church and you overlook the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's a reason why you and I have been laboring together to look at this sermon. There's a reason why we've been looking so long into this prayer, a reason why we've labored. And I think of the reason why I want to leave Oxford laboring over this prayer at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's so fitting in the providence of God. Just, just remember how the Lord works, that He would crystallize our time together, considering this prayer at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, prayer, and how significant is it as well that we talk about prayer on a Wednesday night when we are considering prayer, when our minds are attuned to prayer, we leave looking one more time at the Sermon on the Mount. You know why prayer is significant? Prayer is significant because what it does when we pray, prayer forces our focus on matters of eternity. When we pray, we are forced to consider eternity. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher, in his resolutions famously said, When will all our worldly enjoyments be when we are laid in the silent grave? Resolved to live as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolved to live as I shall wish I had done. Ten thousand ages hence. And then listen to what he says. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. And not many men are willing to pray. Not many women. Not many people are willing to pray such an audacious prayer as Jonathan Edwards prayed that day. But oh, to God that we would. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Or as Leonard Ravenhill once said, stamp it on the, on the uh, corridors of my heart. Whatever the case may be, give us this vision of the eternal God. Give us this vision of eternity. And nothing, beloved, will force us to see eternity when we take our hearts to a posture of prayer. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 6. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Teach us to pray this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Prayer is an awesome privilege. When we pray, we are touching eternity. When we pray, we are asking God to take our present realities, our present circumstances, and bend them to conform to His will. And that con- the context of the prayer fits with this in the sermon. Look at what Jesus is doing. Jesus is drawing a contrast between the world that we know and the world that He's bringing. Remember, Jesus has come, and in that coming, He has turned the world upside down. This is the reason that Matthew chapter 5 grips us with this, this wonderful uh, Beatitudes passage where He takes things that we may despise and says, No, these are the things that are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, they don't have it yet. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in hearts. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those, even he audaciously says, blessed are the persecuted. And then blessed are you and you're reviled. For my sake, Jesus has taken the paradigms of this world and with His coming, He has turned them upside down. And so it's just fitting. Because in the whole sermon, Jesus is drawing a contrast between the world that we know and the world that He's bringing. And look at chapter 6 and verse 5. Look, look at this. Look at the contrast here. Look at what He says. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. And then look at verse 7. When you pray... Don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Which leads us perfectly into verse 9 when Jesus says, Pray then like this. Do you see the contrast that he's drawing? Don't pray this way. Pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You see, by teaching us to pray, Jesus is telling us this is the posture of my people, a posture of prayer. The posture of a people who live by faith and not by sight. This is my people who depend on God for everything. You see, what is Jesus doing in this sermon? What's He, what's he doing? What's He telling us about? He's telling us about the day when He will reorder the world according to Himself. And that's what His coming has done. We know the truth. Because of Jesus. We know what love is. Because God has demonstrated His love for us. We know all things because we now have been confronted with the reality of God Himself in the incarnate Son. Jesus is making, as He preaches, Jesus is making a people of overcomers. A people who overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, as Revelation chapter 12, 11 says. 
And that's the first point this evening that I, I encourage you to write down. And sorry I don't have them here before you, but number one, God calls His people to pray. Pray then like this, our Lord says. Or when Luke comes and addresses Jesus teaching His disciples to pray, Luke records the disciples coming to Jesus and asking Him, Lord, teach us to pray. And then Jesus says, pray this way. And He repeats the prayer. So God is calling His people to pray. When He says, pray like this. When God was leading the Israelites out of Egypt to the promised land, the Bible is very specific in Exodus chapter 19, and we don't have time to go there, but write this down, that they were to be a nation of priests. Not a nation with priests, but a nation of priests. Now, what's a priest do? A priest's purpose is to stand before God. God says of His people that they are going to be a nation of priests. Not a nation with priests, but a nation of priests. Each person was to be a priest. Each person was to themselves go and present their case to God and not have need of an intermediary. Not have need of one standing in the place of a priest. Well, Exodus chapter 20 comes and something goes wrong. Because of the hard-heartedness of the people. And Deuteronomy gives us the commentary on what happened. Because of the hard-heartedness of the people, they become a nation with priests. Instead of a nation of priests. As God establishes Aaron and his sons to the office. And then the Levites later. And so Christ then comes. And he gives this Sermon on the Mount. And don't miss the significance of this. Deuteronomy ends by Moses saying, A prophet who's better and greater than me, a prophet like me, is coming. And when he comes, listen to him. And then all of a sudden we see Jesus climbing up a mountain, just as Moses ascended Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. So Jesus here ascends a mountain and preaches a sermon. And then tells us in that sermon, shows us in that sermon, that He is the one who Moses declared in Deuteronomy, listen to this one who comes. At His baptism, remember what the remark was? Listen to Him. An echo back to Deuteronomy, letting us know that the prophet, like Moses, the prophet greater than Moses, is here. He ascends the mountain and He tells us in the fifth chapter, He didn't come to abolish the law. What has He come to do? Fulfill it. Jesus has come to fulfill it. And so He has come to fulfill what was promised and make a new people, a royal people, a holy people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. As 1 Peter 2.9 tells us, a people for His own possession. And this Jesus, at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Calls His people to pray. We stand before God as His priests. Covered our garments are the blood of Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. Our garments washed white by His precious blood. We come to stand before God on our knees. 
as we pray. In our sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, that calls me from a world of care, the joys I feel, the bliss I share of those who anxious spirits burn with strong desire for thy return. With such I hasten to the place where God, my Savior, shows his face and gladly take my station there and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. Oh, what a joy to pray. What a privilege of fellowship when God's people pray. And listen, this is so important because there is no one else on earth that can pray this way except God's people. No one can call Him Father unless the Son has given them the right by grace through faith. God has His ear bent to hear the sweet aroma of His people praying, We are the church. We are the people of His own possession. And God has called us to pray. From this avenue, from this place, and from your closet, from your place, God calls the church when we're gathered together to touch eternity, to pray, to remind the world there's so much more than what meets the eye. Have you ever wondered how strange it must be for someone to, on the outside to look at us if they were to come in and find us praying? I wonder if the world would come in and find us all silent as we, as we would be, maybe, in a posture of prayer, We're not looking around. Sort of vulnerable. If someone decided to come in and do us harm, we're vulnerable at that moment, right? Because we we have all of our attention on eternity. And by the way, when I'm here, when I hear a door open and we're praying, I do look in the back just to be safe, and I think we should too. But what would the world see? What would they see? What do they think? Oh, these people there aren't doing any good. I remember having a dream one time as a boy. I had a dream. Uh, I was in my bedroom praying at the foot of my bed. And I had this dream. Satan came in the room. That was, you know, what did it look like? I don't know any of those details. But I remember in my dream, Satan came in the room. And he looked at me and he said, Why are you praying? Do you think you're doing any good by praying? You're not doing anything but just talking to the ceiling. Without missing a beat, I cut my eyes over in my dream at Satan. And I said, Satan, if praying isn't doing any good, then why on earth are you here? That's what we need. We need this kind of attitude that understands that when a saint prays, as D.O. Moody used to say, a saint on his knees can see more than the philosopher on his tiptoes. Oh, when his people pray. And that's the privilege that God's given us. That's the only thing that we can do sometimes is pray. We can't do more than we have when we, before we pray. But we better make sure that we pray. We serve, as Robert Louis Wilkin reminds us, listen to what he says, and this is probably one of my favorite quotes of anything that I've ever read, and it's from his The Spirit of Early Christian Thought, which was an option, and some of you took it as we read it together. The church is not an instrument to achieve any other ends than fellowship with God. It serves society 
by being unapologetically itself and by bearing witness to the justice that alone makes human community possible. The justice do God. Now listen to what he says next. The greatest gift the church can give society is a glimpse, however fleeting, of another city where the angels keep eternal festival before the face of God. In other words, what he's saying, and I think he's right, is that we serve society by being unapologetically ourselves. And regardless of what the onlooking world thinks or says, we, his people, have been commanded by him to pray. We are the church. We are the ones that God has called out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we fulfill our calling when we pray. You say, prayer? Is it really that big of a deal? Probably to most people it's not. Honestly. I've preached before when we started this series back a while ago. I don't think that there's much praying going on in the world today. I really don't. Not if we consider what Jesus says, and it's not important to even some Christians. I really don't see how a Christian can go long without prayer. But statistics tell us that God's people aren't enjoying praying. Now listen to me. I'm talking specific. I'm not suggesting that Christians aren't praying. We get together for a prayer meeting like we are tonight. But this is something that we should challenge ourselves with. Look at our list that we have tonight. Look at the list. And this is just, I haven't seen the list beforehand. But look at the list. And look at the prayer in Matthew 6 before you where Jesus says, pray like this. And then see how much praying we're planning on doing tonight. We don't know what prayer is, beloved. And we show it often when we pray and God answers and we say something silly like, prayer works. Every time someone says that, I, I scratch my head. And maybe, maybe I should give people the benefit of the doubt, but theology, matters of eternity... Weighty matters like prayer, I believe they require precision. Why is that? Because Jesus says, don't do this, do this. One way is the wrong way. One way is the right way. Precision matters when we're talking about something as important as prayer. Now, hopefully we don't treat prayer like some magic formula. Or do we? Maybe a better way, this is my proposal, maybe a better way to express our thanks to God for answering our prayers is not to say something as flippant as prayer works, but maybe we should say something like this. The God to whom we pray hears when His children cry out to Him. Now, I confess, that's my proposal, but I confess, well, that's, that's too much, Pastor. You know, we, we need to shorten that. That doesn't, that doesn't have a catchy phrase to it like prayer works or, or prayer changes things. But why am I harping on this? Here's the reason as your pastor. I don't want your faith to be in anything else other than God. I don't want us to pray because we believe that prayer works. 
I want us to pray because there's a God in heaven who hears when we call to Him and acts on behalf of His people who pray to Him. Now, we all agree, we all know that, but I want to make sure that we're not slipping into some rut where we're having all of our emphasis on prayer as opposed to the God in whom we pray. If we would only learn to pray this way, we pray, each time we pray this way, we confess the eternity that God has made known to us when He has sent the Son to us. When we pray this way, we confess that the way things presently are, bless the Lord, are not the way that things are going to be. When we pray this way, we anticipate as well as participate in the purpose of God for the world. I stumbled over that. I want you to hear that. I want you to hear that. When we pray this way, we participate in the purpose of God for the world. Let that sink in for just a minute. When we pray this way, we participate in the purpose that God has for the world. Now that's a different way of praying, isn't it? There's a passage And one day I hope to preach Revelation. I've not preached much in Revelation because Revelation is one of those books where a lot of theologians are like, what on earth is going on? People that think that they've figured it out, I'm not quite sure that they have. We have to approach a book like Revelation with great humility. But there's a passage in Revelation that's so significant and veiled in so much mystery. Revelation chapter 8, the first five verses, listen to it. Remember what I said, when we pray this way, we participate in the purpose of God for the world. Now lay on top of that, Revelation 8, 1 through 5, listen to what it says. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Listen, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayer of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and an earthquake. All the times that Christians have prayed, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. All of those times where Christians have prayed that prayer and it seems like that that was gone unanswered by God. At the end of time, God says He takes all of those prayers and He uses them with the prayer of the saints as incense and they rise before God from the hands of the angel. God has the angel take the censer, fills it with fire and throws it to the earth with peals of thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. When we pray this way, we participate in some mysterious way 
in the purpose and plan of God. God uses the prayer of the saints to usher in the end of the age. Now this picture is so important for us to consider. As we think about who it is that will inherit the new creation after the old one is consumed. Who is it that will inherit the new creation? Who is it that will inherit the new heavens and the new earth after the old one is is consumed? Not me. Not you. Oh, I'll be there. And prayerfully, you'll be there too. But it won't just be me. It won't just be you, will it? It'll be us. Look at the plurals of this prayer. Our Father. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. And this is the whole reason for the message tonight. This is what I want you to see. If God calls the people to pray, then He wants those people who pray to not just pray anyway, but to be like Him. This is number two this evening. And this is sort of long, so I'll say it a couple of times. God's people are most like Him when we pray for others. God's people are most like Him, or you could say Christ-like. God's people are most like Him when we pray for others. Prayer is an awesome privilege. But praying for others is the way that you and I imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. I remember my parents belonged to an independent Baptist church, Bible Baptist Church in Noonan, Georgia. My dad was saved, and he went to that church the first time. I raised my brother in that church. They had a banner in the choir loft. Others, Lord, others, let this my motto be. Let me... Live for others so that I might live like Thee. Praying for others is the way that we imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. Listen, it was Jesus that taught us to pray. What's He doing? He's demonstrating the kind of care He wants us to have for others by generously giving us this prayer and then teaching us to pray. Now here's a challenge, and I've given you this challenge before, but it still stands because it's a good one. I can't get over it myself. How often when you pray do you use first-person singular pronouns like I? Try to pray without saying I. How often do you use plural pronouns when you pray, like them or they? Or third person singular, he, she. How often, beloved, are you praying for someone else? I can testify tonight that I sure am glad that somebody prayed for me. 
And I can even go better than that. I can say tonight that I'm glad that right now even someone is praying for me. Now here's the point. And this is what we have to be really careful of. There's this thing called individualism that is all so pervasive in our society. It's hard for us to see the world without seeing it through our own eyes. It's individualism. Individualism is a sneaky demon. Because, our listen, our self-awareness can quickly become the center of our praying. And when that becomes the case, the less likely we are to pray the way the Lord teaches us. And I'll give you an example of this, of just how subtle that this is. I'm guessing that uh, someone here, or maybe someone you know, has an idea of heaven with some cabin next to some mountain stream away from everybody. How serene, doesn't it? Can't you just hear the babbling brook? Can't you just see the little light on in the cabin, smoke coming out of the chimney? Can't you just see it? Ah, so beautiful, isn't it? Or maybe you think that heaven, you're going to get your own mansion. Maybe you think that. Maybe you think that you're going to get your own mansion. And you know, have you ever had a mansion to yourself? Now, that's the stuff that kids dream of, right? Riding the big three-wheel up the hallways of some big mansion. But you know what? After a few days, I imagine that mansion would get pretty lonely. And this idea of individualism, it's crept into the way that we read Scripture even. Listen, John fourteen two, a verse that I love, a verse that you love. It says this, in my Father's house there are many mansions. Now, when we read that, when King James translated that word into mansion, he didn't intend us to mean that we were going to get our own castle just like he had. When we read that, we don't need to read it through the lens of individualism. And let me show you why. The word there for mansion that uh, the King James translates and some other translations translate is the word monet. That almost sounds like money, doesn't it? Yeah. It means abode or dwelling place. And this is why it's so significant. And this is why the study of of the original languages are important. Even if you can't read them, you can still look at them and learn from them. Just a few verses later, in chapter 14 and verse 23, that same word is used, Monet. And it's used to refer to the Father and the Son by means of the Holy Spirit taking up residence, Monet, with the one who loves God and keeps His Word. Jesus says, I will make my dwelling place with Him. Literally, if we were translated the same way, I will make my mansion with Him. Which again leads us to consider the purpose of this message. Is there a way that we can know that we love God? If Jesus says that I'm going to make my abode with the one who loves God and keeps His Word, is there any way for us, to you and I, for us to know that we love God? Yes. What is it? Keep His commandments. But what are His commandments? Love one another. How on earth can you and I express our love for one another? Well, James tells us in chapter 5 and verse 16, he says it plainly, pray for one another.
I believe Mr. Spurgeon was right when he said, intercessory prayer is the sweetest that God ever hears. Why is that? Because of Jesus. Look at this prayer that he taught us here in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there again, this is where precision matters. And I hope that you demand it always from this pulpit, every pulpit that you give your ear. Precision matters because this prayer in Matthew 6 is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But we've learned together to be more precise than that. We've learned that it's better to refer to this as the prayer that the Lord gives us. Now, there again, that's one of those things that's my proposal. You say, Andy, you need to shorten it, man. Come on, it doesn't have a nice ring to it like the Lord's Prayer. Can't you do better than that? Well, this is the prayer that the Lord gives us. And that's more precise. You say, why is it more precise? There's reasons why we shouldn't think of Jesus needing to pray this prayer. uh, Mainly, really, just one clause that uh, tips us off when he tells us to pray, forgive us of our debts. Now, Jesus doesn't have any need to pray, forgive me of my debts. Why is that? Because he's too busy forgiving our debts. He's too busy answering our prayer, forgiving our sins. And he could not forgive us if he was in need to be forgiving. No, if we're to find the Lord's Prayer, we need to go to John chapter 17. And this is the prayer right before his prayer in Gethsemane, right before he faces the cruelty of the cross, right before he faces this gruesome death for us. In John 17, we see our great high priest. And what do we find him doing? Interceding for us. In his hour of distress, in his times of grief, when all sorrows were his, Jesus prays for you and me. You see, for me, it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but he sweat drops of blood for mine. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Here in this moment, all of heaven was attending to the petitions of the Son. He had heaven's ear. He told Peter he could have called legions of angels down. All of heaven is listening to him. And what is it that echoed through the corridors of heaven? A prayer, not for himself alone, but a prayer for you. And a prayer for me. A prayer for us. And then He says to us, pray like this, our, us. He gives us the sweet ministry of prayer to pray for, to ask for, to receive not only our needs, but the needs of others. We are most like Christ when we pray for others. When I left Trip McConnell College for Kennesaw, I left what I call the Baptist bubble for the real world. And one of my new roommates decided to introduce himself to me with a rather peculiar way. 
He decided to hold a knife to my throat. He came up behind me while I was sitting down and took one of his military knives and held it to my throat with the blade touching my throat and introduced himself to me. Mike was angry. Mike was lonely. Mike had been dishonorably discharged from the military because he was too aggressive. Mike needed Jesus. I talked to Mike for a year and a half about Jesus. It was the brunt of most of his jokes. I came to a point where I was ready to give up on Mike. I was done with him. I'd heard enough blasphemy from him. I'd corrected him enough times. I'd wasted my breath. All the other things. I had cast my pearls before swine to have him walk over. All the rest. I was done with Mike. And the next morning, after I decided to give up on Mike, I was reading 1 Samuel chapter 12. The providence of God again. Speaking to my life. Speaking in a moment through His Word. And 1 Samuel chapter 12 is where, and I'd been going all the way from Genesis, and I'd made it to this point in 1 Samuel chapter 12, where Israel was asking for a king like all the other nations around them. Samuel, he comes along and warns them of judgment. It almost appears that Samuel is washing his hands of them and giving them over. Then you come to verse 23 of 1 Samuel 12. And when I read 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 23, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Samuel looks at the people and he says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. How could I stop praying for Mike? It wasn't long after that that Mike came to me and said he needed to talk to me. To make a long story short, I had the privilege of leading my roommate who held a knife to my throat to Jesus Christ on the balcony of our apartment. I wonder, who are you praying for? Have you given up? Keep praying. You're never more like Christ than when you take your, whoever it is, a loved one, a neighbor, a friend, to Jesus. I pray that you and I never cease to bring those that we love to Jesus. You see, because Jesus will never give up. Maybe there's some listening to the sound of my voice who thinks that Jesus has given up. Who thinks there's no hope for them. They've gone too far. They've done too much. Everyone else has given up on you. Not Jesus. He is ready to forgive. He is ready to offer life. But you must come to Him. 
what would the world be? What would this church be if we took Jesus serious and prayed like this? Our Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for giving us this wonderful ministry of prayer. Help us to pray this way. If there's anyone who thinks that Jesus has given up on them, Father, may they know tonight that there is, as Corey Ten Boom said, that there is no pit so deep that His grace is not deeper still. He is more ready to forgive than we are even to pray. Whatever there is holding them back, let them come to you now. Burst the bonds that keep them down and let them come running to Jesus. Running to Jesus. Father, for us who are yours, show us this person. Show us these people. And tell us to not cease to pray for them. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.